Hello and welcome to the Black Eyed Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle. How are you doing today? I hope things are going well for you. I really do. My thoughts and prayers are with you. They really are. Especially those who are out there protesting the vaccine mandates, the no job, no jab, or no jab, no job mandate that's going on right now. Also, among other things, and we're going to be discussing that, by the way, um, there are 2,300 New York City employees who have called out. There are protests going on across the nation. Uh, I don't know if mainstream media is actually showing this. It doesn't seem as though they are. And also, we want to talk about today, the great day, November 2nd, which is Election Day, yay, and the implications of the Virginia race, because let's face it, folks, that is the big one. That is the race that is going to determine, maybe for the good or the bad, what is going to happen on a national level. It's certainly going to put into perspective um, the contrast between the Trump administration and the Republicans and the Biden administration and the Democrats. The Democrats aren't doing very well, as you well know. They have uh, made a lot of promises, and they have not fulfilled not a one. Not a one. They've only succeeded in being authoritarian. So, let's talk about uh, the national uh, implication. But first, before I talk about that, Listen, if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe to the channel. Um, And, you know, hit me up on Twitter at MHB1070 and on Instagram at MHIGH1029. Let's go. Let's dive into what's happening today, Election Day, which is going to be very, very interesting. Um, forgive that chirping in the back there. <laughs> we had a blackout here, and I'm still trying to find out where that chirp is coming from. But um, just forgive it in the back. Okay. Um, this article comes from ABC News. And it's called The National Implications of Virginia's Gubernatory Election. And yes, there is an implication. Um Virginia voters have a choice. They have they can continue the Commonwealth's more than a decade-long streak of backing Democratic candidates at the statewide level, or they can reestablish Virginia as a battleground where Republicans can not only compete but win. More than 1.1 million Virginians have already noted, or excuse me, voted in Tuesday's election which will determine three statewide officers, uh, office holders and which party controls the state legislator, legislature's lower chamber. The stakes, as defined by the candidates at the top of the ticket, extend far beyond one state. I'm not so sure, because I think Virginians are very much about Virginia at this time. Um, it's already been, um, uh, you know, said that the 2022 election, you know, the House is going to flip. Uh, Biden is going to lose his power. Uh, 
than his ability to govern or, or to, you know, push new legislation through um, due to the, the uptick of, or excuse me, or the overturn of his, his uh, influence in the House. So the, the, the Democrats will not be controlling the House. You know, that's not going to happen for them. Um, historically, that has been the case with Republicans and Democrats. And I don't see where, um, considering the Democrats and, and Joe Biden's um, his approval ratings, that that is going to change by a long shot. Um, the eyes on the nations are on us. Why? We all know that Virginia goes... As Virginia goes, so goes the nation. Glenn Youngkin, the Republican nominee for governor, said at a rally over the weekend. We are going to send a shockwave across this country, and there's not going to be a Democrat in any seat anywhere in this nation who's going to think that his or her seat is safe. And I believe that to be the truth. You know, um, Biden's approval ratings, Biden is dragging everyone down. He has, you know, he's not even fighting for his bill. Not that I'm with that bill by any means of the given word, but, you know, he's not even fighting for it. In my opinion, he has shown absolutely, positively no leadership in governing at all. Not an ounce of leadership with the House or the Senate. None. Not a one. Not, not one iota of leadership. He could have whipped this thing into uh, existence. He could have forged through. I mean, the squad. What is the squad? You know, he could have done more, I feel, you know, as president of the United States. He could have done more. You have the House and the Senate. Do more. But he, he doesn't even have the leadership quality. You know, he doesn't even have the leadership to do that. Uh, the gubernatorial, uh, gubernatorial excuse me, race is the marquee race of the year. It's the first competitive contest since Joe Biden replaced Donald Trump in the Oval Office, and both men, men loom large over the race. Well, I don't think Biden looms large over anything. Months ago, it looked like Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic nominee who first served as Virginia's governor between 2014 and 2018, was on his way to a comfortable win in a state that trended blue under Trump's presidency and delivered Biden a win by a 10-point margin. But going into Election Day, the matchup is a dead heat. McAuliffe, who has, who has pledged to build Democrats' prog uh, progress over the last eight years, told ABC News, Jonathan Carl, in October that he hopes his race will uh, set the tone for the Democratic Party heading into the midterms, excuse me, <clears throat> when its members have to defend their slim majorities in the House and Senate. Rather than trying to divorce its fate from the off-year election, the National Party has gone all in for the Democratic ticket, investing a record $5 million in sending top surrogates to campaign with McCullough. These surrogates, which include Joe Biden, First Lady Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, and former President Barack Obama, have made it clear Virginia is a political bellwether. Well, I'm laughing because if you were like me and you watched 
that, uh, I don't know what you would call it, that little, I guess you would call it a, a rally or a little get-together. Um, a, Joe Biden's, as we discussed before, his approval ratings, they're saying it's in the 40s. I believe it's a lot less than that. I think it's in the 30s. It's dropping like a stone in the ocean, like you, you throw the stone in and it brings it all down. Joe Biden is a weight, a dead weight on the Democratic Party. Uh, Kamala Harris, did you see her speak? Did you see her? Not one person even uh, responded to her. She had zero delegates. For, for the life of me, I cannot recognize, and maybe this is a red flag for the Democratic Party, why anybody would make Kamala Harris the vice president. She ran for president and had zero delegates. Zero. She is not liked at all. Nobody likes her. She is fake, phony, and all kinds of falseness that, in, that can encompass a human being. She is not, you know, wherever she speaks, nobody respects her speaking. She doesn't galvanize as a crowd. She doesn't, you're not interested in what she has to say. I call her personally, I call her the, the what do I call her? Uh, we, we, uh, she, a trophy vice president. You know, she hits all the marks and, and the tear, you know, all the check marks, but she has no real substance. And the sad part about it is Joe Biden something would have happened to Joe Biden, she would be the president and she would be a deer in the headlights because she absolutely positively has no substance whatsoever. She has no substance. But if you saw her, when you saw her, she was campaigning for McCollum. She, there was no response to her at all. She made some sort of joke. Nobody laughed. It was nothing. It was nothing. President Barack Obama. Well, I don't know, you know, he's been touted and, and held up and, and you know, whatever. They're, they're really coasting on what was. He is no longer the person he was, you know, when he was new, fresh, and exciting. We know what he is now. We, we all have suffered the Obamacare, uh, that draconian Obamacare stuff. So he's not what he was. Um. What what uh, moving on? What happens in Virginia in Virginia will, in large part, determine what happens in 2022 and 2024 and on. Harris said, stumbling from a call on Friday. Don't let Virginia be an experiment. Well, it's already an experiment. Youngkin, a former private equity executive running as a political outsider, has opted for a different strategy, mocking his opponent for bringing the fellow career politicians as he mostly goes it alone. Mark Roselle, a dean of the Scholar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, said McCullough's strategy is indicative, indicative excuse me, of the enthusiasm gap polls have consistently shown exists between Republican and Democratic parties or voters. Yeah, um, I've just been watching, just watching, you know, you go to C-SPAN and you watch certain things, no one's really feeling the Democrats. I, I find it very, and this is what, you know, uh, is difficult for me to grasp. 
81 million people voted for Joe Biden, and they have absolutely no enthusiasm for him. And it's not because he's a boring candidate and he's not, you know, doing a circus thing as, you know, they like to pin on Trump. But he really is not, he's not the president or the great white hope promised. He isn't. He hasn't stepped up. And, you know, I noticed a great deal on the left that a lot of the uh, blue check marks who've often been, uh, uh, you know, yelling and screaming about Trump are awfully silent when it comes to Biden. Really awfully silent. BLM is silent. You know, he promised police reform and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, he gave he gave black Americans Juneteenth holiday that black Americans were celebrating anyways. But here we go. McAuliffe campaign is bringing in all these big name national figures to try to drive up the Democratic turnout, Razel said in an interview. They're worried that the Democratic base is asleep right now. It is. You're bored them out of their mind. There's nothing exciting about you. State Senator Craig Deeds, who beat McAuliffe in 2009 gubernatorial primary, told NBC News that Tuesday's contest is, quote, a turnout election. Terry was an energetic and effective governor for four years. He left office popular, I think. I think it's still his race to lose, Deeds said. It's just about our turning people out. The votes are out there. If they get them out, he'll win. But it's all on us to make sure that it happens. I think they will. Um, if you were following the Virginia race or the, the constituents of the Virginians, they are very big on education right now. And Terry McAuliffe made a very big mistake. And he said something about he wasn't going to let parents come into schools and dictate uh, the kind of books that their children read. And everyone, including people on the left, said that that was a huge mistake to talk to the parents that way. Um, because you forgot who were, you know, who, who pays those taxes. The parents pay those taxes. You know, uh, that's your money. The government doesn't get money without the people. I mean, it can print money, but it's going to be pretty much worthless. But people paying taxes, those property taxes, that's what gets you the money. And you're talking to, and not just white, it's not about white supremacy and all those stuff. Parents, period, who don't want critical race theory to be taught in their schools. You know, if you're reading anything um, about the American and the American education system, we're slipping lower and lower down the totem pole in education. Our children can barely read. They can barely add and subtract. You know, they, they can barely fill out an application. They're not graduating ready, uh, high school ready to go to college. They're simply not, especially in the inner cities where the educational system seems to have just thrown up their hands and let whatever happened happens. So... McAuliffe, I guess he's feeling himself, felt that it was necessary to talk to parents in the way that he's been talking to parents um, 
just, you know, disrespecting them all out and saying whatever he felt he needs to say to them uh, or challenging them about their rights as parents. And right now, Virginia is not thinking about the national implications. They're thinking about education of their children and what they want their children to learn and what is necessary, uh, you know, to help their children have a better life going forward. So, former Delaware Jennifer, uh, excuse me, former delegate Jennifer Carroll Foy lost to McAuliffe in June Democratic, in the June Democratic primary, where she since rallied around McAuliffe's campaign and through her political action committee, Virginia for Everyone, has contributed to the Democrats' voter engagement efforts. Running for office is all about the ground game, she said in an interview. We are mobilizing a multiracial, multi-generational coalition of supporters and voters. Shouldn't you be doing that anyways, though? That, that, you know, whatever. We are all committed to making sure that we get the Democratic ticket statewide and down-ballot races elected because failure is not an option. Oh, it very much is an option. It is very much an option. Youngkin, however, is banking on Democratic failure. His campaign's momentum can be traced back to the final debate in September when McCullough said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Youngkin pounced launching a Parents Matter mobilization effort and centering his closing message around this issue by defining himself as an advocate for parents and McCullough as someone who isn't. It's a brilliant strategy. It's a very smart strategy. Because once you start attacking pay, uh, parents, and I, and I just said this before, they're the taxpayer. They're the ones who pay for these schools. And yes, parents have a right to decide what goes on in their schools, what their children learn, what they teach. There are some subjects that the parents are responsible for talking to their kids about, not the schools. The school isn't everything. It's an educational institution for education, not for uh, uh, steering children in, in, in what to do and what not to do. It's a place where all children should come to learn. Sarah Isker. A GOP strategist and ABC News contributor said the school's issue is an enthusiasm driver for voting for voters. And even if Youngkin doesn't win, Republicans have already learned it's an effective message going into midterms. Yes. McAuliffe has pushed back on Youngkin's narrative of him on this issue, accusing his opponent of using education to, quote, divide Virginia and using students as political pawns. Don't you just love the hypocrisy of that situation? He was the one who said parents, he won't let parents come in and dictate what books the children read. You know, thus thrusting parents and students into his political, into the arena. But now, you know, that Youngkin seems to have an upper hand with that message. Now, McCullough wants to say, you're dividing Virginians and using the students as political pawns. Honestly. Painting Yunkin as a divisive and extreme candidate has been central to McCullough's attacks against Yunkin. 
He's done that by linking the GOP nominee to Trump, who's deeply unpopular in Virginia, and warning he will bring Trump policies to the Commonwealth. Well, this is where I feel he's made a mistake, McCullough, because Trump hasn't even said, there hasn't been a decision whether or not Trump is going to run for 2024. It's looking like he might, but then again, he might not. And 2024 is a long way away. And people really don't give a damn about what's going to happen in 2024. 2022, however, is right around the corner. We're one month in, you know, one year, we're, we're out. You know, 2022, excuse me, is around the corner. But 2024 is not around the corner. It's going to happen a little bit faster than we think, but it's not around the corner. And people, especially voters, care about the here and now. They want to know what our governor is going to do for today, not for 2024. You know, we don't care about 2024 right now. We care about today. What are you going to do for us today? How are you going to protect us today? How are you going to help us navigate uh, whatever we have to navigate today? Not about 2024. And I think, you know, not that I'm for McAuliffe, but McAuliffe made a grave mistake in trying to tie Yunkin to Trump. And I think Yunkin did an excellent job by not feeding the beast. Because that's all the Democrats have. They have Trump. They want Trump to be the weight around the Republicans' neck. But he's not. He's not. He's not in office. He's not running for any office. He's not doing anything right now. He's saying who he likes, which either, you know, I don't know if that really matters. You know, he's a, he's a, a former president out of office. And they're trying to turn the tide and say that Trump is the, 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 the stone around any Republican candidate's neck. And that's not true. And Yunkin is right to go out there and stand on his own and make his own campaign. Because really, it's about the now, not about the future. We don't know what the future holds. We simply don't know what the future holds. The tactic has forced Youngkin to perform a delicate dance of embracing Trump enough so as not to alienate the former president's base, but not so much that he turns off moderates and independents. Trump endorsed Youngkin after he secured the nomination, but he's never appeared with the nominee on the trail. I think that's very wise. While Youngkin campaigned heavily on election integrity, which we all need, that's not a Republican or Democrat issue, that's an American issue, an issue inextricably tied to Trump during the primary, he since pivoted to other issues with appeal beyond the base. Very good. Very smart. Unfortunately for McCullough, I suppose, Donald Trump is a somewhat diminished figure. He isn't the threat that he was in the previous four years in which Democratic turnout in Virginia was off the charts, Razel said. Razel said Youngkin has also benefited from the amenable Trump base. Amenable. They're not pushing him to go all 100%, 100% all the time on their issues. Trump's willingness to mostly sit this race out has unquestionably allowed Youngkin 
to consolidate the Republican vote and focus on the independents, something that a lot of other Republicans haven't had the luxury to do, as Gard said. If McCullough's strategy is trying to, is tying, excuse me, uh, if McCullough's strategy of tying Youngkin to Trump fails, she added, the silver lining for Democrats is that they have the opportunity to rethink messaging ahead of the midterms. Well, yeah. You know, they have time to turn things around. I don't think they will because they are under the threat of Donald Trump. They want to, um, what do they want to do? They want to smear him and, 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 and you know, uh, throw him out of his name and make sure that 2024 he is um, mired in these controversies and these um these litigations and all this petty little nonsense, these petty little jabs that they can throw at him so that he won't uh, be a clean candidate should he decide to run for president. So um, tell me what you think about this subject. Again, hit me up on Twitter or on Instagram. And I'm going to take a quick little break and we'll be right back and we'll talk about... Um, some of the other things that are going on in the nation, and uh, stay tuned. You are listening to the Black Eye Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Black Eye Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle. Oh, well, how have you been? It's been a minute. Just took a uh, break and I'm back. In the previous segment, we were talking about the Virginia race um, and its implication uh, nationally. um, What it could mean to Republicans on the national level or Democrats on the national level. Frankly, I don't think that it's going to make a difference in the upset of the House or the Senate. Um, It's still going to be a pretty close race, no matter who wins. That's my personal opinion. Um, But uh, going forward in this segment, that was a sneak. Um, We're going to discuss a little bit more about the, the... Virginia race, um, because I came across an article that kind of made me laugh, um, and I, the reason why it made me laugh was because I have been watching very closely, um, the race in Virginia, and I was watching the various news outlets, um, interview potential voters in Virginia, and, um, I know that there was some controversy. They were trying to make, uh, and that, I mean, they, the Democrats or whomever these strategies, liberal people were, were trying to um, tie Yunkin to a white supremacist group. And they had some old guys in white shirts carrying tiki torches. And um, they were supposed to be linked to white supremacists, even though there was a black man who was standing with them. So that was funny, and somebody admitted to that. I, I don't re- recall who. Um, but when I saw the entire nonsensical um, uh, threat here, or whatever this thing was, I was, you know, I 
chuckled because I said this is obviously some sort of ploy. And someone did come forward and admit that that's exactly what it was. So now, uh, looking at the Guardian, that beautiful, uh, uh, that beautiful paper right there, full of you know uplifting uh, articles regarding the human race, um, recently published an article about two hours ago, actually. Uh, Smearing Youngkin's possible win as government governor as a white backlash, and of course they they premise it by saying experts say this. And as I was saying, I was looking at the various. They were talking to the voters, various voters, and there were a lot of parents who were protesting um, CRT or critical race theory in the schools. And they weren't white parents. They were all, they were an amalgam of, of richness of multiracial, uh, multiracial people out there protesting CRT. Because a lot of black Americans, we don't want that crap in our schools. We know as black Americans that we need our children to be learning something far more important than do blaming white people or smearing white people for being white. It's an absurd absolutely absurd uh, way to live life and it's ridiculous to put such nonsense into our children's heads. However, um, so the article starts out, yeah, that it's going to be if Virginia's race, governor's race, Glenn Youngkin may win due to, quote, white backlash and they preference it by saying experts say so. So, here it is and they show very funnily white people in the protest and a lot of people who are like i said who were protesting crt or critical race theory in schools were not just white people they were multiracial black americans they were talking to black americans they were talking to different people <laughs> in fact it was a very funny um uh, uh piece where the uh, the reporter was talking to a black american and they said well you know they said that um people who don't want critical race theory in schools are white supremacists and the black man responded he said um yeah well i'm brown skinned so evidently i'm not a white supremacist it has nothing to do with that i just don't want that crap in our schools so here we go they're already trying to smear his win by saying it's uh white supremacy but here we go here's the article glenn youngkin may be riding a wave of quote, white backlash, all that way, all the way to the Virginia governor's mansion and leading polling experts in the state, uh, a leading polling expert in the state said, as Republican led, as the Republican led gov uh, former governor Terry McAuliffe into election day. I don't know who wrote this. Asked why election was a key factor in Youngkin's stronger than expected showing in state recently dominated by Democrats, Larry Sabato of the Center of Politics in the University of Virginia said, Whoa. and great, uh, you know, hold yourself for this, quote, and I'm quoting him here, one of the candidates decided it was his ticket to the governor's mansion and he might well be right, end quote. Speaking to MSNBC, <laughs> Sabata pointed to the core of Youngkin's appeal on education, a promise to ban critical race theory in schools. 
Critical race theory, or CRT, is an academic discipline that examines the ways in which racism operates in U.S. laws and society. It is not taught in Virginia schools, regardless of Youngkin's promise to ban it. Yeah, but they, uh, I believe that there is a company or some sort of organization that is trying to put critical race theories into the schools of Virginia, Virginia schools. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. The operative word is not critical, Sabato said, and it's not theory, it's race. What a shock, huh? Race. That is what matters, and that's why it sticks. That's ridiculous. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot we can call it, white backlash, white resistance, whatever you want to call it. It has to do with race, and so we live in a post-factual era. It doesn't matter that CRT isn't taught in Virginia schools. It's this generalized attitude that whites are being put upon, and we've got to do something about it. We being white voters. Now, this is obviously a very false story because, as you have been seeing, and as you might have seen if you watch YouTube or watch various news organizations, and they do interview black Americans about this, that black Americans are the ones are ones who are vociferous vociferously arguing against critical race theory. To me, it represents a backward step, not a forward step. I don't want my children to sit around and look at my and white people and white Americans and say, well, you're the reason why I can't make it in this world, and you're the bad people. It's stupid, in my opinion. And, you know, I'm putting it in simple terms, but that's how I feel about it. Why would you introduce something like that to our children? But let me not go on a tangent. Back to the um, article here. Though he has campaigned on an issue popular to the right, Youngkin has tried to achieve an appearance of distance from Donald Trump. Which we've already talked about. The former president who lost Virginia to Joe Biden by 10 points. They love to beat that drum. On Monday, at last, the last day of frenetic campaigning, Youngkin did not participate in a Trump tunnel rally stage on his behalf. And nor should he. He's right. He has to stand on his own uh, two feet. He can't ride the Trump train. He shouldn't ride the Trump train. McAuliffe, a Clinton ally, was on one who was governor in Virginia from 2014 to 18. The state does not allow consecutive terms. Has seen a lead, seen a lead evaporate. Defeat would sound alarm bells for national Democrats, particularly given a struggle to pass Biden's spending bill and a bipartisan infrastructure deal, which has seen his approval ratings fall to the lowest level of his presidency. Oh, so far, you know. Cultural issues have dominated the Virginia race, with Youngkin also promising to give parents more control over how public schools handle gender and COVID-19, and McAuliffe, vowing to protect voting rights and abortion access. I don't think, this is what gets me about um, voting rights, okay? And we're just going by the numbers that were presented to us, whether you believe Donald Trump won or lost, whatever. This this doesn't matter. I'm just going by the strict numbers presented to us um, after uh, after the election. Okay, 81 million people voted for Biden. That's what we're told. 81 million people voted for for Joe Biden, 
and 75 million people or something to that effect voted for Joe, for um for Donald Trump. Now we just add those numbers together. Okay? Just add those numbers together. What do we have here? We have 81 million plus 75 that's 156 million people voting in the election in 2020 156 million people voting now i don't know if the numbers about donald trump are correct or whatever you can hit me up and correct me if i'm wrong but still 156 million people voted in the election out of a nation of 322 million people. That means half, half, half of Americans voted. And if we're listening to the Democrats, okay, black, the black vote was the key vote in getting Biden reelected, was it not? Even though a lot of people, uh, more blacks voted for Donald Trump than in any other Republican uh, ever, um, Biden, according to the the news media out there, the MSM, mainstream media, won largely the black votes. Okay, he won. He won by a good majority of them. Even though Trump got a lot of, them. he got a lot of Hispanic votes, got a lot of black Americans, black men in in particular. So, if 156 million people voted, which is a lot of people, that's, that's a huge tournament, who is suppressing votes? Where is the voter suppression coming from? Who, where is this narrative about voters' rights? Because 156 million, really, whatever you believe, whatever, that's a lot of people. That's a big turnout. Oh, God. That's a huge turnout. 156 million people. Many of them black, many of them Hispanic. The only thing I can think of is that the uh, the Democrat the Democratic Party wants to win back its black voters, the ones that they have lost, by relitigating the the voter rights non uh, the voter rights bill in the sixties, because no one is suppressing anybody. If you're gonna half your country went out to vote, half over half out of three hundred and twenty two million people. 156 million voted, give or take a few million. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. So I have a difficult time with, uh, with Democrats practically lying to the American people about voters' rights. Because I don't see the rights being curbed in any way. I really don't, but you know that's that's my opinion on that. 
and abortion rights. Well, abortion, I don't see where people are not getting abortions. Um, you know, abortion access. See that alone. I don't even see where anyone's stopping anyone from getting abortion, even though there are people who are against them. But moving on. Poll showed Youngkin succeeding by appealing to independents alienated by Trump. His strategy could offer a roadmap to, for Republicans in the 2022 midterms, where control of Congress and the fate of Biden's agenda will be at stake without alienating hardliners. Youngkin, 54, and former private equity executive, campaigned as an advocate for parents who want more to say in their children's education. Yes capitalize on anger among conservatives who believe schools are overreaching in the name of diversity. Speaking in Richmond on Monday, he promised he would usher in a Virginia where our government stops telling us what to do all the time. Hell yeah. Listen, parents, and, I, and I've become more aware of this myself as a parent, when we had to stay home with our children, we began to realize the failure of the educational system. And black Americans are leading the way in homeschooling their children. Let me just say, among black Americans, they are leading the way in homeschooling their children because you realize that what our children have been learning has not been beneficial to their lives. It hasn't been beneficial. You want, we want our children to be educated. We want them to be able to read. We want them to be able to write and complete sentences. You know, understanding that a sentence is a complete thought. We want them to be able to fill out an application. We want them to be able to um, add and subtract and to count, for God's sake. Basic reading, writing, and arithmetic. We want them to be thinking human beings, not drones. We want them to be critical thinkers, not critical race theorists. And, and that's a passion among black Americans. And I'm, I'm emphasizing black Americans in particular because we have usually, we're the ones who are out there working. We put our kids in school. We do stress education, but we don't really, we don't really have time to stop and think about what that means. And this pandemic helped us stop and look and see what we wanted for our children and what the educational system was giving to our children. And we began to realize that it wasn't giving us enough. Everyone is telling uh, what you what to do. Everyone's telling you what to think, but no one is giving you enough. Not enough, not nearly enough. And so um, many people are, have looked, they had time to look, they had time to pay attention. And they say, you know what? I don't want all this other crap in our schools. I want Johnny to learn. I want Johnny to read. I want Johnny to write. I want Johnny to have a head, a mind, and thoughts of his own. But he can only do that through reading, writing, and arithmetic, basic education, not all this other stuff that has absolutely nothing to do with it. He can learn that later. But right now, he needs to know history. He needs to know, uh, you know, I don't know, long division. He needs to know something that's going to possibly help shape his future. 
a lot of parents begin to realize that their kids didn't even know the basics. They don't have the basics. They can't take a college exam, the SATs, any of these tests, because they're not prepared. So education is not just a passion for white Americans. Education is a humongous passion for black Americans because we understand more than anyone what education can do for a life. And we want our children to have the best possible lives, period. So that's why the move to black America, of black Americans are to pull their children out of uh, of public education and homeschool them and build little communities where there's a homeschooling going on and that their kids get the right kind of education. And that's why this narrative that it's about white Americans is a lie. Again, what else is new? Because it totally and completely eviscerates what is truly the passion of parents. Any parent want their children to have good education. All parents want that. And I'm emphasizing black Americans in general because black Americans are often sidelined as, oh, we don't know anything about education. Oh, we don't know what's going on. Oh, they're ignorant. Oh, such and such. And they usually dismiss black Americans when it comes to education. But in this case, I'm emphasizing it because it is important that the, the narrative be balanced. It's not just white Americans who care about their kids' education. All Americans care about their kids' education. Black Americans as well. Okay. So, McCullough, 64, handed Youngkin a political gift when he said in a debate on September, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach, end quote. And he has sought relentlessly to tie Youngkin to Trump, attacking him for hesitating to say whether Biden won the presidency legitimately. Look, I have questions about that. We all watched election night. I don't need to go into that. Youngkin acknowledged Biden's victory, but also called for an audit of Virginia voting machine, prompting Democrats to accuse him of validating Trump's baseless election conspiracy theories. I don't think they're baseless. But I'm just going to comment on this a little quick. If you're not caring about what all Americans think about this election process, um, then you have already lost the race. Because you're here to govern for all Americans, not just your constituents. We, we all are your constituents. And if one half of the public feel that somehow the vote was not correct, even if it proved that Biden did win, isn't it in your best interest to prove that he won fair and square? That's all I'm going to say about that. Okay. Both Biden and Barack Obama campaigned for McAuliffe. Youngkin has mostly avoided discussion of Trump, who has not visited the state. In his tele-rally, the former president told voters Youngkin would protect suburbs and did not repeat his lies about voter fraud. Uh, McAuliffe 
um, responded on Twitter saying Trump was pulling out all the stops to win this race because he knows Glenn will advance his MAGA agenda here in Virginia and blah, blah, blah. At final rallies, Youngkin attracted a larger crowd. In Fairfax, McCullough said, guess how Glenn Youngkin is finishing his campaign? He is doing an event with Donald Trump here in Virginia. That was a lie. Of course it was, because that's all Democrats seem to know how to do is lie. In their final word on the campaign, Sabata's team, uh, UVA, moved their prediction from leans Democrat to leans Republican. Our sense is that the race has been moving toward Youngkin, Kyle Klondek, and J. Miles Coleman wrote, in a large part because of political environment, of the political environment. McAuliffe, Trump-centric campaign, also just doesn't seem as potent as a non-federal race with former president no longer in White House. Yeah, because Trump isn't running in Virginia. Trump can do nothing for Virginia. You know, Trump is not the president at this moment. He may be the president in 2024, but he is not the president now. And you can't campaign on the future. You can only campaign on the now. Youngkin has seized an opportunity, and he has seized a gift. I hope he um, follows through and keeps his promises to keep critical race theory out of the schools in Virginia, even though I don't have a horse in that race, but still and all. Fingers crossed. Taking a break. We'll be right back. You are listening to the Black Eye Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the show. How you doing? Thank you for staying with me this long. I hope that I was entertaining and brought something good to your life. Um, But today, I'm going to deliver what I have promised, which was the protest of the vaccine mandates. Now, I I saved this one for last because I really wanted to take time and just apologize to Americans in general. In light of what I had seen and what I'd seen in the, uh, on YouTube and, and various um, social media outlets where Europeans were uh, protesting in the thousands and the tens of thousands, the mandates um, in their countries. I felt that Americans were not uh, putting forth the same, um, the same urgency as our European brothers. But uh, I stand corrected. Uh, It dawned on me that even if there were large protests, uh, that the mainstream media wouldn't necessarily cover those protests because these things, these protests don't fit with the narratives. They're certainly not covering the protest in Italy. They're not protesting those, uh, excuse me, they're not uh, showing those protests in France that have been going on for months now. They're not showing these these protests. They don't want us to see that because it goes against the narrative. And if there were protests here in the United States, those were also being suppressed um, because, you know, 
goes against the narrative. It's what what is what is it? Medical misinformation or whatever nonsense they're spouting right now. But as the vaccine mandates start to take effect, uh, we're learning that in key industries here in the United States, um, people, the, the employees, are resisting and resisting to the point of almost crippling an entire industry. Um, they're not talking about the idea that um, there was a major call out yesterday in New York City. 23,000, uh, they said 2,300, but there were more. There was a massive call out in, the, in uh, New York. Also in Chicago, some something was upheld, I think, in the courts. Um, people are putting up a fight here in the United States. They're not necessarily taking it to the streets, but they're taking it where it counts in the industry. So just to let you know, I am right now on an article from Reuters, or Reuters, Reuters, Reuters. Today, my words are not... Um, coming forth to meet me for coffee. They're abandoning me. They're standing me up. They're ghosting me. Anyhow, goes on from Boeing to Mercedes, a U.S. worker rebellion swells over mandates or the vaccine mandates. And this is really, 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 really inspiring. So, Austin, Seattle, in Wichita, Texas, excuse me, not Texas, Kansas, again, words abandoning me here. Nearly half of roughly 10,000 employees at aircraft companies Textron, Inc., and Spirit Arrow Systems remain unvaccinated against COVID-19, risking their jobs in defiance of a federal mandate, according to a union official. That's a lot. That's half, nearly half of roughly 10,000 uh, employees. We're going to lose a lot of employees over this, said Cornell Adams, head of the local machinist union district. Many workers did not object to the vaccines as such, he said, but were staunchly opposed to what they see as government meddling in personal health decisions. And that's the crux of the whole um, vaccine mandate, right? Some people take a little time to decide. We are... Uh, you know, I like to sit back and, and look and, and take in the risk uh, versus the benefits. Um, and I'm sure there are, a lot, certain, there are a lot of people who like to do that. They like to stand back and take a look. You know, it takes time to make an important decision like this. And the federal government is stepping in, and I believe, this is my opinion, I don't know if this is factual at all, but certainly it seems, under the direction of Dr. Anthony Fauci and others um, to push people to, or not to push them, to coerce them into getting these jabs or lose your job. And the idea is if you make it uncomfortable for people, you will get them to get this, get the jab. And people, I think, if you had just left this whole entire thing alone, more people would have decided to get the jab based on, you know, it's beneficial for them to do that. They might have just said, oh, shucks, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and get the jab. But since you are, since the, and you, I'm talking about the federal government here, I'm talking to the federal government, 
here that you decided to coerce people and threaten their livelihoods after you have systematically shut down the economy, um, uh, sequestered people into their homes for nearly a year and a half, then you're dangling their freedom in their faces as if they're some sort of uh, slave or something. It's, it's horrifying. And I know I'm probably over-speaking, maybe overstating, but it is. And now you tell us that if we don't make a personal decision, um, it's, it's incumbent upon us. You know, so we get to lose our job. You lose your job, it's because of you, you know. And it's all to keep a bunch of champagne liberals happy because they don't want their little lives messed up by the dear old COVID-19. And also to keep, uh, well, I said the champagne liberals, businesses, because, you know, big business loves big government. They want to uh, be able to, um, you know, force you to do what they want you to do, but they don't want to have to suffer the litigation of it. And thanks to the federal government, they won't have to. The Union District has hired a Texas-based lawyer to assist employees and prepare potential lawsuits against the company should requests for medical or religious exemptions to vaccination be denied. A lifelong Democrat, Adams said he would no longer vote for the party. Quote, they'll never get another vote from me, and I'm telling the workers here the same thing. End quote. The clock is ticking for companies that want to continue gaining federal contracts under an executive order by Democratic President Joe Biden, which requires all contractors, employees, to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 by December 8th. That means federal contract workers need to have received their last, uh, their last COVID-19 shot at least two weeks before the deadline to gain maximum protection according to the U.S. government guidance. With a week, with, excuse me, with a three-week gap between shots of the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, workers must get the first jab by Wednesday. If the government holds fast to its deadline, it is already too late to choose Moderna's vaccine, which is given in two doses four weeks apart. Workers opt to get Johnson & Johnson a single-shot vaccine until November 24th to meet the deadline. The mandate has stirred protests from workers in industries across the country, as well, from, as well from Republican state officials. Opposition to the mandate could potentially lead to thousands of U.S. workers losing their jobs and imperil an already sluggish economy, excuse me, uh, economic recovery, union leaders, workers, and company executives said. More legal clashes are likely over how companies decide requests for vaccination exemptions. For the company's time, for the company's time is getting tight, though the Biden administration has signaled federal contractors will not have an immediately laid off unvaccinated workers who miss the December 8th, will not have to immediately lay off unvaccinated workers who miss the December 8th deadline. Under government guidance, and they have a, a thing for that, published on Monday, companies will have flexibility over how to implement the mandate, which may allow them to avoid mass firings. Oh yeah, because they want to cover their asses too. A covered contractor should determine the appropriate means of enforcement with respect to its employees, the guidance said.
For Boeing Company in the United States, from more than 7,000 workers have applied for religious exemptions and around 1,000 are seeking medical exemptions. People familiar with the matter told Reuters. That amounts to 6% of the plane makers, roughly 125,000 U.S. employees. That's not bad. At a rally last week outside Boeing property in Auburn, south of Seattle, many of the three dozen workers gathered in driving rain said they would rather be escorted off Boeing property on December 8th than take a vaccine. Others said they would pursue early retirement. Quote, the mandate is illegal, immoral, and impractical, said one veteran Boeing program analyst who attended the rally. We are standing together against the company and government trampling on our rights. And that's what it comes down to. Our choice to decide what is best for us. It comes down to us. It really does. I think that the federal government thought that with all the fear uh, and people anxious to get back into their lives, that they could kind of get us to to quickly flood in to get these vaccines. And they forgot that people are looking at numbers. We have computers at the at our fingertips. I believe that this is one of the reasons why they want to censor information because people don't need the federal government to give us information anymore. We can find information by ourselves. We're not listening to officials because we know that officials are not infallible. We know that mainstream media is not infallible. We know this now. We know this because we can go and look at the facts ourselves. Um, I don't know. Uh, I think it was in a previous podcast. I did a, a it was entitled Elizabeth Warren wants uh, uh, Amazon to start banning books, certain books that people are reading because she said they were misinformation regarding vaccines. Um, they're scientific books, actually. And um, she wanted those books to be banned. And the reason why she wanted those books to be banned or for, for Amazon to um, regulate their uh, their, you know, regulate their search engine was because she said that people were no longer listening to the experts who are the politicians and uh, their government officials and the medical officials. They were going out getting information by themselves, which counteract or or contradicted uh, the so-called experts. So uh, getting people to follow these vaccine mandates is not quite as easy as the federal government had hoped it would be. And you have, in my opinion, just observing, you know, from observation, you have far too many people who are willing to walk off the job. And let's be clear for all those people out there who are saying that people are walking off because they're going to get unemployment. If you walk off the job, if you are fired, and this counts for 50%, this is all 50 states. If you walk off the job or you do not obey anything in the company, you do not qualify for unemployment benefits, period. So it has nothing to do with unemployment benefits. The enhanced unemployment is over. You know, you're not going to be, there's no soft place for you to fall. So if you walk off this job, there is nothing left for you. Um, many Legal experts have 
said vaccine mandates in the interest of the public are legal. No. Um, they never really put that as a legal term because most of the vaccine requirements are predicated on choice. Um, I remember someone was talking about military. When you go to the military, you have to get a certain vaccine. When you go to college, you have to get a certain vaccine. And if you choose to travel outside of the country, you have to get a certain vaccine. And I, I argue that that is true. But it only does so if you choose. A, you have to choose to join the military. You have to actually enlist in the military. If you choose to go to college and you choose to live on campus, or even if you don't choose to live on campus, but if you choose to go to college or attend a uh, uh, university or college, then you are required to get a vaccine in order to do so. And if you choose to travel outside of the country, then before you do so, you are required to get a vaccine before you leave. But all of these uh, requirements, and they're not mandates, they're requirements, are predicated on choice. If you choose A, then these are the things you must do to do this, you know, to, to, to attain, to uh, attend this university, to enlist in the military, or to travel outside of the country. Um, the rebellion has put Boeing executives in a bind. The company could lose skilled staff, but must comply with a presidential order. Yeah, and this is what makes this particular um, rebellion very important. You know, Boeing builds airplanes. So my understanding of that is that um, those are skilled workers. They're engineers, they're electricians, etc. You know, you can't just replace those people with whomever, you know? That's not, uh, that's not something that you can do. You can't just replace skilled workers. You know, uh, Kathy Hochul in New York said that if the medical staff wasn't going to get the vaccine, that she was going to replace them with um, uh, one of those workers. Oh, God. They just get my money right on the tip of my tongue. But she was going to replace them with uh, the National Guard. That's who she was going to replace them with, the National Guard. And she was, you know, medical, medically trained National Guard. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And she was applauded because she's taking a strong stand. And I laughed a little bit because I felt that um, the National Guard replacing skilled medical staff with the National Guard is not sustainable. That's going to last you for a little while. But after a while, you have to start hiring more skilled workers. And no matter how, how strong you are, there, you, know, you can't replace necessarily a person who has 25 years experience or 30 years experience in nursing with somebody who had maybe six. That's, you know, that's irreplaceable. That experience cannot be attained you know, by snapping your finger and, and, and uh, pretending that these skilled workers are widgets. They're not. You just can't do it. And so, uh, especially what's going on in Southwest and the various airlines, um, I just watched the uh, uh, IG uh, video where um, someone was saying how airplanes were being, you know, flights, airplanes, 
flights were being canceled all over the place. Like there were there was there's difficulty getting um, a flight to go from A to B. And these are industries again. You can't just replace a pilot. You can't just snap your fingers and go. Okay, well, well you you don't want to work. You don't want to obey us. Well, you know we can get somebody else to do your job because they can't. They can't, and they know they can't. And this what put this is the this is the straw. This is the what I would call the turn of the screw because companies like Boeing, companies like. Um, like the Southwest, these companies with these skilled workers, you can't replace them. Doctors, you know, doctors, uh, nurses, I mean, you know, come on. Come on, you already have a shortage in the nursing industry. So it's not like you can, there are a bunch of nurses waiting to come and take somebody's job. There aren't. There's a national shortage of nurses. And do you really want to fire these nurses? Do you really want to fire these uh, engineers, electricians, and all these uh, skilled workers, these people who've been doing this job for 20, 30 years? These people have certificates and honorees and, and all sorts of things. You can't, there's, they're not waiting in the wings. Especially during an economic recovery. A Boeing spokesperson said the company has committed to maintaining a safe working environment for its employees. The order's provision for religious and medical exemptions is causing more tensions. Two textron workers who requested a religious exemptions told Reuters the company's human resources representatives quizzed them on the name of their church leaders and asked detailed questions about their faith. Which is very, isn't that illegal? They're not supposed to ask you about your faith, are they? Hmm. Textron declined to respond to questions, but in a statement said it was obligated to comply with Biden's order and was taking steps to do so. Employees who are unable to receive the COVID-19 vaccine due to a medical condition or sincerely held religious belief are being provided an opportunity to request an accommodation from this requirement, Textron said. Spirit Arrow Systems did not respond to a request for comment, of course not. Raytheon Technologies CEO Greg Hayes last week warned the U.S. defense firm will lose several thousand employees because of the mandate. A group representing FedEx Corp, United Parcel Service Inc., and other cargo carriers said it would virtually it was would be virtually impossible to have all their worker workforces vaccinated by the deadline. Yes, I mean, I think that goes without saying. You know, you have people working 10, 12 hours a day. When are they going to have time to go get this vaccine? You know, they and again. Uh, FedEx has a shortage um, of employees going on here. Everyone has a shortage at this present moment. I thought there was this grand labor shortage. There was this 10 million jobs opening and nobody's working. You had a vast uh, resignation. People quit their jobs. They didn't resign. They quit their jobs. 4.3 million in August. So right now, in this point in time, 
and you only added 194,000 jobs in September. Uh, October remains to be seen. But here we are. You know, employers are struggling to keep employees. And now you want to alienate these people further by implementing this mandate. Uh, some companies have imposed vaccine mandates even absent immediate government regulation. Mercedes-Benz USA, the U.S. unit of German carmaker Daimler AG, was is not a U.S. government contractor. Told employees on, in an October email seen by Reuters that proof of vaccination against COVID-19 would become a condition of employment beginning January 4th. Carmaker said it implemented the move in anticipation of a separate U.S. government vaccine mandate that would apply to businesses with at least 100 employees, affecting some 80 million workers nationwide. Less than half of the company's workers at U.S. import processing uh, centers, processing centers are vaccinated, and many refuse to get a shot, according to a source familiar with the matter. Mercedes USA, in a statement, said it had given employees a 90-day notice to fulfill the requirement, adding that two-thirds of its U.S. employees, not including factory workers in Alabama, have provided proof of a vaccination to date. We expect that the vast majority of our employees will provide proof of vaccination before the deadline, the company said. And so it goes. Again, I don't have a problem with people getting the vaccine. This is not what this is about. This is about government overreach. I've said this time and time again. We'll say it time and time again. But, um, this is not about getting the vaccine. This is about the government overstepping its, its um, you know, the overstepping. <laughs> again, my words are not meaning me for coffee. But anyways, um, you know, it's overstepping. It's taking advantage of, of people or trying to take advantage of people whom they felt they have scared and and terrified for a year and a half and who would be anxious to take this vaccine. That's what we're all protesting, the mandates. And it, the thing is the mandates are backfiring because people who might have just gone along, excuse me, and come to their own conclusions are not doing that. You know, now you have people digging their feet in and you have, you are feeding conspiracy theories because even I'm looking at you and thinking, well, why are you forcing us to do this? You know, if, and we're looking at the numbers, the CDC numbers and the numbers all over the world, and we know how to count. I mean, I used to indict the American education system, but, you know, it can't be all that bad because Americans know how to count. We know 322 million and 700,000 deaths, which we don't want anybody to die, of course, does not equal, um, enough people to, um, you know, warrant this uh, aggressive mandate. And considering that it was like 32 million people who were infected and recovered, and out of those 32 million people, or maybe more, 700,000 have died, you know, again, we don't want anybody to die, but we can count. And we know that these numbers don't necessarily warrant this aggressive mandate. It simply doesn't. And now they want to give these vaccines to kids 5 and 11. And it does make you take a look and stop and pause and give a little side eye to this. More than a side eye. It makes you turn your head and say, what the hell's going on? 
what are we doing here? Why is this necessary? What is it that you're not telling us? You know, and it's beginning to look like a vast experiment on uh, the world, on how, you know, uh, how to uh, counteract these, these uh, viruses. The suspicion, A, if you want to water the, the, the plant of, um, of um, not false information, but of, of uh, conspiracy theories, is to look at this and say, well, if people made it, and they know that people made it, and, and they're, they're lying about people making it, and then they turn around and they introduce these vaccines to, quote, unquote, stop it, huh, I'm not saying, I'm just looking and saying, asking a question. What is going on here? So, get back to my subject here. I'm wandering off. But it's so good right now to know that Americans are standing up and fighting against these mandates. Because these mandates are not good. They're not good. Once they step into these mandates and they start forcing you and coercing you to do things, there's nothing they won't stop and coerce you to do. Nothing. And what do they dangle in front of you? Your freedom, as if the government gives you your freedom. Uh, I want to touch on a brief story, another story briefly about 2,300 um, New York City firefighters call out sick as vaccine mandate begins, but mayor says public safety not disrupted. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know how that's possible. Uh, normally, 800 to 1,000 firefighter employees calling sick on any given day. If the Nigro said many people calling in sick were protesting the vaccine mandate. If you're sick, you're sick. It's a dangerous job. I get it. If you're not sick, I want to see you back at work. How do you know this? How do you tell somebody if you're sick, you're sick? Once the members come to their senses and stop using medical leave improperly, they can help out not only the citizens of the city, but their brothers and sisters who are staffing these units. With many public safety unions pushing back against the mandate, city officials have worried about employee shortages in the fire and police departments. I'm not talking about that, but there are shortages. I mean, there were shortages once they start talking about defund the police, especially in the police department, and crime in New York is outrageous. Speaking at a news conference, Mayor, uh, conference, Mayor Bill de Blasio said approximately 9,000 city employees are on leave without pay as of Monday out of work, out of a workforce of 378,000 for not complying with vaccine mandate regulations. He said public safety has not been compromised. Well, yeah, I believe he would say that because he doesn't want people to believe that it would be compromised. De Blasio said people who are inappropriately using sick leave in the fire department or any other department are facing very serious consequences. Um, how do you know, though? How do you know? Anyways, if you have been with me this long, uh, thank you. I appreciate you. I appreciate you listening. Um, don't forget to tell me how you think about this, how you feel about what's going on. Uh, contact me on Twitter, uh, MHB1070, on um, Instagram at myMHIGH1029. Hit me up. Leave a message. Thank you for listening to me. Have a great day. Be blessed. Bye-bye.
You have just heard the Black Eye Podcast. If you would like to contact me, you can do so through Twitter at MHB1070, on Instagram at My1029, that's M-H-I-G-H-1029, excuse me, or on Patreon at theblackeyepodcast.com. If you would like to donate to the podcast, you can do so through Stripe. Any donation helps me make better content and bring it to you. Thank you.